Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. As written about and taught in the United States, the history of post-World War II movies often follows this pattern. Italian neorealism and responses to neorealism, the impact of TV, Hollywood spectacle, the French New Wave and responses to the New Wave, Cold War movies, social realism, movies from Sweden, Japan, and China, Hollywood's second golden age, New German cinema, third world cinema, Hong Kong, Bollywood, Australia, and New Zealand, the rise of the blockbuster, the impact of home video, corporate synergy versus independent production, CGI, international co-production, the impact of the internet, and streaming. We might add to this movie-centric list other sociocultural experiences, including civil rights agitation, anti-colonial independence movements, gender and sexuality-based advocacy, various wars, several epidemics, and more than a handful of economic crises. Then, we might sprinkle in some famous and influential people, both inside and outside the arts, like Kennedy, Gandhi, Kubrick, Warhol, Lucas, Thatcher, Reagan, Beyonce. Finally, we drill into specific movie titles and themes we're interested in exploring. Chapter 8 in this idiosyncratic survey of movie history, The 36th Chamber of Shaolin and Athleticism. Some years ago, I attended a film festival with friends where there was blind programming. All I knew is I was stepping into a room where Hong Kong cinema was going to be celebrated across many screenings over the course of a day. I happened to walk in and watch the 36th Chamber of Shaolin, which I had never heard of. I had not even heard of anybody in the cast and crew, aside from Gordon Liu, who I knew from Kill Bill Volume 1 and flashbacks from Kill Bill Volume 2. What happened to me that afternoon was realizing that my ignorance is a gold mine because the 36th Chamber of Shaolin is great, great fun. It tells the story of a young man named Liu Yud. That's Gordon Liu. He lives in a small village that is controlled by a military junta that is executing people for violating the rules and norms of this military dictatorship. This young man, through his teacher that's giving boys direction in Confucianism, literacy, all of the skills necessary to be a proper adult, is instilling the boys with a sense of rebellion. Our hero agrees to distribute messages among the different rebellious cells so they can act out against the military that controls their region. It all goes wrong, and he drags himself at great expense and cost to the faraway Shaolin Temple, where he's been told that the Shaolin monks have special martial arts capabilities that may help him overcome these oppressors if only he can learn to control his body and use their martial forces to put down his enemy. He spends seven years in the temple, becomes a master of all 35 chambers, that is, 35 disciplines of Shaolin's martial arts, and then asks to be released to establish the 36th chamber, which is bringing the Shaolin monk's martial capabilities to the people. He does so, develops acolytes, and eventually defeats in combat the general in charge of that military group, 
that destroyed his village, killing his family and ruining his childhood. The 36th Chamber of Shaolin is released in 1978. This is towards the end of a decade that's often called a golden age, not just in the United States, but in various nations on Earth that experienced a renaissance in cinematic communication and expression, whereby artists entered the cinematic realm and discovered ways of producing great art and exploration of obscure and entirely personal stories, while at the same time often finding extremely rich potential with mass audiences. But then there's this. The 36th Chamber of Shaolin is about brown people in a universe populated by other brown people competing with one another and winning. And all of that is centered on the fetishization of the brown body of Gordon Liu. Why do I say this? The movie's credit sequence opens by watching Gordon Liu, shirtless, going through a set of poses and motions demonstrating his martial capability, and his body is as lean as any Olympic diver. He's bald, and he looks terrific. And we recognize what we're looking at here is our ability to stare at a particular kind of body doing a particular kind of task that was then not all that well-known globally. That is, East Asian martial arts. The movie's story of a rebel who learns skills to overcome the group that was oppressing him is cut through with frequent fight sequences. Let's realize that Hong Kong, then as now, is a satellite of mainland China. Hong Kong, then as now, had a different language system that was dominant there, Cantonese versus Mandarin, and Hong Kong has a different relationship with the West and the rest of the world from mainland China. This allowed Hong Kongese cinema to create different modes and different habits of behavior, especially in martial arts movies, that proved globally popular. One reason is this kind of athleticism, performance and choreography, does not require any underlying story to tell what's happening. When we see people go to fisticuffs and use their ankles to beat one another or grab knives and go for it, we can understand what's happening without being told. When the bad guys are coded through costume, behavior, and camera angle a particular way, and the heroes and the allies of the heroes are coded in an opposite way, we know who the warring parties are. And so when they mix it up in truly wonderful choreography, we have no confusion whatsoever about what's happening, which allows a movie like this one to be transplanted to virtually every language on Earth and find an audience. Taking myself back to that strange Saturday afternoon when I walked into a blind theater space to watch this movie, what I remember most about it is that it has a really punchy use of cinematography. One example, the Shaw Brothers studio, which is the producer of this movie, was known for experimenting with different formats that had become predominant in the West, particularly in the United States and in parts of Europe. And so they adapted the CinemaScope widescreen ratio that had been established in the 1950s in America and created their own version called ShawScope. So we're looking at an extremely wide angle view, 2.35 
horizontal units to one vertical unit. And what this means is any lateral activity in the fighting is really extraordinary and has time to move. But the camera is not still. If a character drops into a crouch, the camera will frequently drop with them. When a character thrusts upward at the sky, the camera will lift with the thrust. When a character in the distance makes a discovery, there's a quick zoom into what they discover to see their face in close-up from when they'd been viewed before in long shot or extreme long shot. This does a couple of things. It allows us as the viewer to have a very kinetic experience of this story world, and it allows the filmmakers to create fewer lighting setups by instead cleverly using the camera where it is to do certain things. That is, move down on a crane, move up on that same crane to zoom in or out of objects without having to cut away and relight a scene. And this movie is largely shot on a series of sets that the Shaw Brothers studio owned. A village, a castle, a roadway, with frequent Scenes shot on location out of doors. How do I know? Well, in some of the interior shots, we don't see the sky. We don't see the roof, in other words, because they're careful to compose stuff on that set. And even if the set is outdoor, the sense of claustrophobia is important to understanding how this character in this world is feeling restricted by this military power that does harm to his village and, in fact, kills his family, requiring him to go off and earn his training. But the fun of the movie, beyond all of these other measures, is that we do watch this strapping youth with long black hair go off to the Shaolin Temple, where he confronts a group of elders with unusual talents and capabilities that are combining a religious system of chant, prayer, and self-control with an overt martial arts system of self-preservation and protection. The upstart young man wants all of the violence, but none of the discipline, but through the course of his training, figures out how he has to submit himself to the higher logic of there being a higher plane of activity, a higher purpose, a oneness with the wider universe that also enables him to become a master practitioner of the martial art that he wishes to use in defense of his fellow man. He goes bald. He walks through his training very frequently with his shirt off, doing extraordinary stunts that are, get this, often done in slow motion so we can really see how brilliant and exciting is the athleticism of Gordon Liu and all of the performers that are arranged around him. An aside. When I was a child growing up in San Diego County, there was a local TV station that broadcast from Mexico, XCTV Channel 6. And to fill out a weekend's worth of its programming hour, it would frequently use old Hollywood movies, which is how I first met Ma and Pa Kettle, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. But it's also where I first encountered a whole stream of martial arts movies, many of them from this era in the 1970s. These were movies that many adults around me thought were stupid, were too bloody and violent, and of course they were right. But that's exactly why they zeroed in on my forehead as a youth to say, this is something unusual. So to boomerang back around to this title I'd never heard of before, deep into my 40s, and then re-watching it recently, I'm taken with the idea that this too, just like the great works of Scorsese and Coppola, is an example of the golden age of 1970s movies. It explores the taboo subject of the male body turned into a trophy of punishment and also of strength 
as a lesson in how a person must bend the knee to create a submissive personality to a sense of higher power and therefore better organize a response to threat and cruelty. And we watch all of this played out rather gloriously as Lu Yud becomes the monk, San Te, and reintegrates himself back into the village where he once fled so many years before. Let's also note that this being a Hong Kongese movie demonstrates the viability of non-European and non-North American movies beginning in the 1970s, where former colonized peoples began to use the tools of the cinema to express stories from their societies, but from an independent position that began to compete very overtly with the works of North America and Europe. This is an example of that new tradition in post-war life, where the centers of commerce, of art-making, of taste-making, shift from traditional centers like London or Milan, Paris, and New York City, and become more diffuse across the globe based on the work of certain very creative people. Let's not forget that this is a Christic story once we peel back the layers. We watch a man possessed of belief in his fellow man, oppressed by an outside force, who decides through discipline and a submission to a higher power will acquire the necessary skills to turn the other cheek. Because the monk Sante never kills anybody. The monk Sante protects people from being killed by others and teaches them self-protection. He is always in a defensive posture. And he also teaches it's important to be bound together and not stand alone to withstand the forces of evil. And as somebody watching this in my middle years and reflecting on this movie's deeper structures, I'm well aware that this movie is positioning itself as a retelling of certain very superficial aspects of Chinese history told through a very dynamic subgenre of the action or adventure movie, in this case, Hong Kong Kung Fu movies, and making all of that more palatable through selling a lesson about nonviolence through one of the most violent movies you're likely to see from this era. That also demonstrates the importance of the training sequence, of athleticism, of the male body in motion, choreographed as anything Fred Astaire or Gene Kelly ever did as dancer-singers, and done so in a way that would teach the action and adventure movie stars of the 1980s, I'm looking at you, Stallone and Schwarzenegger, how to better do their work based on the example of Gordon Liu in The 36th Chamber of Shaolin. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin-Kirai. Boop-boobity-doo!